and the GSA you know, turned me gay. So, <laughs> <laughs> hi everyone, you're listening to Starry Indecisis. The Starry Indecisis podcast is recorded at the CFPB studios located on the unceded Coast Salish territories of the Wasanish peoples and the Lekwungen speaking peoples, including the Songhees and Esquimalt nations. As uninvited guests on these lands, we acknowledge the ongoing harm that the university, the faculty of law, and the practice of law continues to enact on Indigenous communities, and how these institutions continue to benefit from the taking of land and their active roles in ongoing colonization. We are committed to amplifying Indigenous and marginalized stories and perspectives to disrupt this reality in creating a more just and diverse future. Hi everyone, this is Vincent. Today's episode, I am interviewing Lane Clark. They are a second year law student at the University of Victoria Faculty of Law. They are also a fellow board member on UVic Law's Appeal Law Journal with me. Currently, they are the co-president of UVic Outlaws. For some context, I've been wanting to do an episode focused on be- on the queer experience in law. And also, it came out five years ago, so I still consider myself a baby gay. So <laughs> I think this is a great opportunity for me to learn about other queer experiences. So thank you so much for being on our episode today, Lane. Thank you for having me. And so to start us off, can you introduce yourself? For sure. So my name is Lane Clark. I use they, them pronouns. I am in 2L in the JDJID program at the Faculty of Law in the University of Victoria. I'm a white settler from Kokwakiwak Territory on northern Vancouver Island. I'm from the settler town of Port Hardy, which is where I live alongside my neighbors in the Kwatsina First Nation, the Gwasanakwekta First Nation, and the Kwagiyuth First Nation. So I identify kind of generally as genderqueer. I like to kind of like put little parentheses around the gender because like everything about me is kind of queer. I kind of live this like weird undefined um, existence there Um, mostly because like labels are great and all but they don't really help describe like who I am so I feel like that's like kind of vague and anamorphous enough to capture it. For people who aren't that familiar with the term genderqueer can you give an idea of like what people usually mean when they adopt that kind of label? For me it kind of just means really existing outside the gender binary so it can mean a lot to different people for me as well the reason I use the term queer is it is politically charged of course in the past queer was used as a slur against LGBT people and it's kind of started to be reclaimed especially by the younger generation including myself so for me it represents this like particular political form of resistance against the like oppression of the gender binary and that's really important to me and how I identify. So for me, I don't know, I kind of present how I want and exist how I want, basically. Um, And it can be a little difficult to explain sometimes, but I just kind of am here floating in the gender void. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Queer is often used as an umbrella term, too. You know how people use it to just mean like LGBT? Yeah, I think it's a really functional umbrella term. Again, I think it's like something that is really politically charged for a lot of people. Like it is really this like 
resistance, I guess, of like the general binary of like heterosexuality and cisnormativity and Mm -hmm. all of these kinds of things. So I think it is a really effective umbrella term for people who like wish to identify as such. For me, I kind of like cycle in terms of like umbrella terms between queer and LGBTQ, depending on the situation. Right. Yeah. I think I feel similarly because sometimes it's a mouthful for me to say LGBT. And then so queer is a helpful term for me and also for me to feel like a sense of community, which is nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You were from Port Hardy, was it? Yeah. That's Can you tell from. me about that? So I actually grew up, um, I grew up in Holberg, which is a logging camp about an hour north of Port Hardy. Um, only about 350 people. I went to school that like had anywhere from 9 to 17 people um, from K to 7. Wow. Yeah, it's like my fun fact about myself. It was like a really easy way to impress people when I went did my undergrad in Ontario. Um, But And then I moved to Port Hardy um, when I was about 10 years old. It's a town of about, I don't know, 4,000 or so people, I'd say. Um, And it's very kind of, we have obviously a very large indigenous population as well, but a lot of uh, just a lot of white settler folks as well um, that came for blogging, fishing, mining. So it's like very much an industry town. Um, So like, I think growing up in a small town when you're queer can be a little bit difficult, but I've been generally pretty lucky in my life. Um, When I was about grade nine or so, I think I started our GSA at school, our Gay Straight Alliance with a friend. I actually thought I was straight at the time. but (laughs) 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 Yeah, with my friend who had like recently come out as gay. So we like started that together. And obviously, you know, it worked out that I was queer too. So I've been pretty lucky with like the friends I found and everything. Of course, it's not all like easy um I definitely face like homophobia and stuff from people I thought were friends in high school but I've generally been very very lucky in my life to be around like very accepting people and I think uh Port Hardy in general has been gotten even more accepting as time has gone on like we have our own little pride and we've had like drag shows and like all that it's really really it's really cute and like pure and wholesome I love it (laughs) wow 4,000 people isn't that many people, hey. No. So, <laughs> But it's nice that you were able to start a GSA. It sounds mm-hmm. a pretty good friend move to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it worked out for me as well, so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And did you find out, like, way after or was it around the same time? Um, I'd say, like, maybe a year or so okay. after, kind of. Did you feel like having a friend who was already out helped you feel more accepted? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think... Um, he faced like a lot of adversity obviously I wouldn't want to speak to his experience but he also like had a lot of support as well and that was really great to see and a lot of support from people I knew I think that definitely really helped just having that person I could relate to in those kind of experiences Mm. yeah I was I was just thinking about my own experience and I had a friend from high school We weren't super close, but then after we graduated and we ended up in Toronto together and I found that that she was gay and I I didn't know before that and I was like really shocked, but I just, it made me feel more comfortable (laughs) to to come out myself. It sounds like you started your activism journey early on, (laughs) starting the GSA. Um, 
Do you want to tell me about your undergrad experience? Because I know that you had a lot of experience with LGBT advocacy. Yeah, almost too much, I think. Mm -hmm. It was a little overwhelming. So I went to Western University in London, Ontario. Um, Just to clarify, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did my undergrad in, I did an honor specialization in anthropology. I did a focus on cultural anthropology. It's kind of my jam. Okay. Um, Did something spark that interest? Yeah, I actually, so I actually went to Western to, because Western has a bunch of, like, uh, bioarchaeology and, like, really good, like, bioarchaeology kind of technology near, in London. Mm -hmm. And then I got there and I was like, oh, man, I hate archaeology. So (laughs) I ended up doing cultural anthropology, Mm -hmm. um, which worked out, like, I loved it. And all the profs were amazing. I was, like, so blessed with my department. It was it made like my experience at Western so much better because when it came to a lot of the activism I was doing, it was really, really difficult at times. So I always had that like really good part of the university that just made me very happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my first kind of two years, I didn't really do that much kind of activism. I lived, I was very lucky to live in my first year on uh, Western residence has like an LGBT floor. So that was really cool. It was really, really tiny. There was only like 15 of us, but that was neat. And I met some of my best friends that I'm like still friends with and who I was roommates with later. And it was a really great experience for meeting people. And then in my third year, I started Spectrum. Um, which was kind of a general LGBT, more of a social kind of club. There wasn't really at the time like a general social club. There was Pride Western, which like was a service that provided things like discussion groups and advocacy. Um, and then there was Queers, and there was Outlaws, but there wasn't really a general kind of student body club. So I said, okay, I'll start one. (laughs) So a few of my friends and I did. um, And it was really great. It's still going strong today, which is nice. We still follow them on Instagram. Um, It's nice to see my work still um, there. Um, But when I was um, when I was president of Spectrum, I got involved in a lot of advocacy. So I sat on a student council uh, student issues subcommittee for lgbtq2 plus issues on campus um and through that did kind of a lot of advocacy in relation to gender neutral washrooms as well as the different services on campus so one of the things we did was talk to people who had a different services such as admin and housing and medical services to try and see where they were on kind of queer issues um, and advocate to them, obviously, to be better (laughs) um, in a lot of ways. Another thing I did as well was uh, I co-edited a issue of the student newspaper as well when I was president of Spectrum, and that was really fun. It was like a pride-focused issue. That Mm -hmm. was really cool. (laughs) What kind of content did you have for that issue um it was kind of a little bit of everything it was really great we had short stories we had art we had people who wrote kind of articles about their own personal experience so one of them was about being a queer person in stem another was about asexuality and what that meant to them and then we had uh 
fantasy stories being submitted uh, like that were queer oriented and lots of really great art and that was something I was really really proud of I, yeah. <laughs> I think for sure that's so cool yeah what did you take out of that undergrad experience um I think for me it's kind of difficult because I haven't really done a lot of advocacy obviously I am doing a little bit at the law school level although it's kind of subsumed by being a law student yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for sure but for me I think the number one thing I learned is uh nothing is kind of done on your own like I would have never done anything or accomplished anything I got to do without all of my friends supporting me and um not only like everyone working with me but also the fact that we worked collaboratively like nothing is done alone and trying to go at it alone just kind of leads to burnout so I think it's really important to find that kind of core group of people that can support you as friends or if it's as colleagues it really allows you to succeed I think. How has how has being queer informed your worldview, Lane? Oh, it's a lot, I think. Um, so it's kind of might have been guessed from how I identify myself. I am a very political person with very strong views. Um, and for me, um, being queer has informed my worldview in understanding others. I think it's very clear, you know, as a white queer person, I'm never going to understand, you know, what it's like for a queer person of color. I'm never going to understand what it's like for, um, you know, what it's like to experience anti-black racism, etc. I'm also someone who's very, very comfortably middle class, um, have been for most of my life. So experiences of poverty, which a lot of queer people experience, you know, I'm never going to understand them. But I think when you kind of experience oppression on a particular axis, it doesn't always, but it does make you a little bit more receptive to kind of understanding that and kind of acting in solidarity with others. I started kind of really hyper-focused on like queer issues, but in being friends with people whose queerness intersects with um, other facets of their identity, as well as just being receptive to the world at large it allows me kind of not allows me but I kind of I think it kind of encourages empathy and solidarity for me so even though I am never going to understand some people's experiences I think it just um, has made me kind of more empathetic and made me more um, motivated to kind of act in solidarity with others um if that makes sense (laughs) yeah i think i would agree i think i guess being queer in society you kind of know what it's like to feel like you're on the outside yeah exactly so it's easier for us to empathize with Mm -hmm. other again as you said axes 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 of (laughs) oppression yeah Um, but i think yeah i think to your point, I think there are many different experiences mm-hmm. in the queer community that exactly each each of our experiences don't really touch. Mm-hmm. So that's like an interesting thing that I'm learning. Mm. 
your law school experience. Can you tell me about your journey? When I was finishing undergrad, I was very, very determined that I wanted to eventually do a PhD in anthropology and become a professor. Like that was my goal. Um, very lofty goals considering the job market for professors, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, um, and I was very, very passionate about that. But at the end of my undergrad, I did a service learning trip to Rwanda. I just had a really great experience. I joke that I like eat, pray, eat, pray, loved, (laughs) but not really, not really, I promise. Um, but when I was in Rwanda, Um, I just met so many cool people that really inspired me to really work with others, I guess. I've always been a really empathetic. I know that's kind of like a meme, like being an empath, but (laughs) we spent a lot of time talking about kind of dynamics of uh, reconstruction and genocide, but as well as the whole dynamic of service trips themselves, like white saviorism and all these kinds of things. Um, So in going to Rwanda, I was really kind of in touch (laughs) with that kind of issue. Um, especially as a white person just going to Rwanda in general. So we worked with um, primarily organizations that helped uh, street children or homeless children in Rwanda. I worked with a lot of just really great people. They saw an issue in their community that needed to be fixed and in a lot of cases gave up very like lucrative careers or international development careers to help their own community. And for me, that was super inspiring. And it really caused me to think a lot about um, what I wanted to do with my life. Like, did I want to go get my PhD and do research, which I personally think is very important, um, but, uh, and then have that research really only be read by a few people and just um, contribute to that kind of like ivory tower, um, yeah, that ivory tower environment, or did I want to actually do something to help people in a community and I obviously settled on the latter um, with going to law school and for me something I've been very passionate about for a long time has been restorative justice and has been uh, the abolishing of carceral systems and prison reform and abolition. I joke that on my very good days, I'm a prison abolitionist. On my worst days, my most hopeless days, I'm a prison reformer. (laughs) Um, But like, yeah, that's something that for me, I think is a huge issue. And especially as it relates to indigenous peoples within Canada who are so disproportionately represented in Canadian prisons and within the Canadian criminal justice system, especially in the prairie provinces like Saskatchewan, where I where they make up just a disproportionate amount, I think 80-90% of the prison population. Mm. And obviously, colonialism and how um, colonialism has criminalized indigeneity and indigenous peoples plays in a lot to that. So for me, I saw kind of that as one of the main (laughs) issues that I feel like I was passionate about and that I think is a really important issue. So how can I do that? Well, I could be a criminal defense lawyer. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of how I ended up at UVic and I ended up in the JDJID program is that I wanted to develop those skills and really use my privilege in a particular way to do my very, very best to help individuals and individual clients. So that's kind of how I ended up in 
law school, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's a really cool journey from Yeah, Rwanda it's really to... uh really meandering. <laughs> but Which I feel like is most people's experiences yeah. to law school. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're someone who's like, I'm always gonna go to law school. <laughs> I guess now that you're at law school and wanting to be a criminal defense lawyer, it seems like you're willing to work within the system. Almost. Yeah, and I think it's important. I think there are limitations to what you can do inside the system. But I think as well, um, when it comes to criminal defense especially, you do need um, good prosecutors. And I think some people, you know, think good prosecutor is an oxymoron. You can't really be like that. Um, But after working at the uh, Ministry of the Attorney General, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I think there can't, there are are good and bad lawyers just like there are good and bad people in every single uh, profession. And I think as long as you acknowledge kind of the limitations of working within the system, whether or not you are a criminal defense lawyer or a criminal prosecutor or really any lawyer that is kind of working within the public interest, I think you can get a lot done. Because for every, you know, defense lawyer that um, is really, really advocating for their client, you also sometimes need a receptive prosecutor that's willing to advocate for diversion, who's willing to advocate for sentencing circles, who's willing to advocate for so many different things. So I think um, it's really important to, yeah, just acknowledge the limitations of the system you're working in and uh, just really... um, I guess, fight for what you believe in, as lofty as that is. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of times we, like, get worried or, like, feel sad that we decided to go, like, the lawyer route Mm. and, like, almost, like, as if we were abandoning our beliefs. Yeah, for sure. So that's a really interesting perspective to have because I think sometimes we need Mm. to be flexible as well in order to achieve like mm-hmm. what we what we think <laughs> yeah you've participated in the recruitment process mm-hmm. right so how did you find that process as a queer person it's a little weird i don't think it's I, it's not been hostile which is always a winner but mm-hmm. um it is a little bit weird because i rarely know kind of going into it how kind of receptive um, different firms will be. And obviously there's been a lot of strides. A lot of firms have kind of engaged in diversity and equity programs. A lot of firms participate in Pride, all these great things. But again, it's um, different when you're a queer person, I think, going into the process. You know, I see a firm that's participated in Pride and personally, I'm a little bit cynical. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I'm like, okay, great. What else are you doing? <laughs> like, um, so for me, I, I never really know how receptive they might be to especially pronouns. Like, I don't really think, for me at least, I, I don't really care about queerness in terms of like sexuality in that situation because it doesn't really come up, right? But in terms of gender identity, and especially when you use uh, gender-neutral pronouns or any other pronouns besides the the norm, um, I think it can make it a little bit difficult. And a lot of people default when they see me to using like 
female pronouns because you know I'm not exactly gender conforming but I oftentimes present a little feminine so you know a lot of people make assumptions I think about that so for me I think it's a matter of just kind of uh, just it's a matter of, you know, pronouns in your email or participating in Pride not being enough. How are these firms really changing and how are these recruiters really changing how they view the people coming into the recruit? And I think it's a little difficult because when you're in an interview with, you know, senior counsel or principals, you're not, you feel very intimidated. You don't want to correct them, right? Um so at least I feel very intimidated. Others may not. But, um, and oftentimes I think too, like I found myself, there was like a virtual mixer when I did um, OCIs. And I was like the only one that put their pronouns in their name that I can see. And I was like, oh, this makes me stand out. And it's really weird. <laughs> mm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. It, it, again, it's not really like a hostile thing. Yeah. It's just... I really don't think that um, people have yet, and it's not necessarily for a lack of trying, but really question their assumptions on gender and how they see others. I think it's something that people are still working on. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like it's the little things mm-hmm. that happen throughout for you to feel mm-hmm. not included, and yeah. I think that adds up. Yeah, it does add up. Because, like for example, I've done interviews where people have corrected themselves and I personally really despise when people correct themselves and are like over correct so when they're like oh my gosh I'm so sorry blah 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 blah. and I'm like it's cool just correct yourself and move on so I think sometimes that can be a little awkward as well and I I'm generally a very just chill person unless you know someone is repeatedly misgendering me or uh, and this hasn't happened in recruitment, but if it's like hostile or intentional, um, that's uh, kind of when I get really uh, angry, not necessarily angry, but just upset, <laughs> I think. But when it's a genuine mistake, I'm like, okay, that's cool. Move on. Um, I don't want you to kind of spend your time apologizing and proving to me that you're a good person. I understand that you're trying and people mess up sometimes and that's that's okay too. Don't make it awkward. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do you feel about the um, the pronoun policies in court that they've introduced in BC? Um, I'm generally very supportive. I think it's a good thing um, and I hope other jurisdictions follow. It's a really, really good first step. I think for it to take actual effects kind of like broadly within the legal profession will be a while. But I generally do think it is a very good thing. Like I was surprised? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, No, I think it is surprising. Because like even in normal or like even in other situations, we there's not that mm-hmm. type of policy. So for the courts to take that, I was very, very surprised. So which shows how far behind the law can be. Yeah, for sure. I I think it can be a little odd if, yeah, you don't understand it or if, you know, people might not really be sure. They're like, oh, what is this? (laughs) um, But I also think, too, um, for me, when I was doing court in Ontario and I did POA court, so I was speaking in court and I was speaking to the justice of the peace and I just really didn't want to spend time 
dealing with that. So I'm just like, okay, I'll just deal with uh, she, her pronouns, and I'll just deal with being referred to as miss. Um, oh, interesting. So I, I just didn't really feel like that was worth my time. It was mm. more uh, just an assessment of the situation, especially because you have so many people coming in and out of court, and yeah. if they – you know, aren't familiar with this, is it going to be a big thing? Um, oh, I so see. I think yeah. kind of normalizing as like a regular procedure of court definitely will help because then it doesn't have to be a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like even, even having that like formally mm-hmm. kind of makes you feel more comfortable. Yeah, just for in sure. General. What are some initiatives that you've worked on in in law school? I know you mentioned that you're mostly focused on being a law student, which is totally <laughs> fair. I totally feel that, but mm-hmm. I know you were in Outlaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so in Outlaws, um, I guess Outlaws is kind of, we do like a lot of social things more. I think it's kind of just nice to have that social outlet where you're hanging out with other queer law students. We have put on events. I know last year we did a panel that featured some individuals who have practiced um in relation to queer issues in the law and that was really really cool um i got to find out just a lot of cool things that people are doing especially when it comes to the human rights of queer people trans people specifically as well um with outlaws i think it's there's always kind of that general advocacy to the law faculty in terms of you know gender neutral washrooms or um including more queer content um, within the law school. Because I think, you know, I think legal process, for example, is a really good experience. Um, But I would like to see a little bit more content that really considers critical legal theory. Um, So that's something we've been talking about as well. Um, And yeah, just kind of trying to create a really nice space for queer students on campus to just come and hang out. I think that is the priority. And but yeah. advocacy is always kind of in that background, trying to make this space that, yeah, is very white and heterosexual and cisgender a little more friendly to queer people, even if it's just, you know, us sitting in a room and airing our grievances for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Lane, can you tell me about the Trans ID Clinic? Um, how did you get involved with that? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I'm a project lead with the Trans ID Clinic through Pro Bono Students Canada, UVic. Um, so I volunteered last year with the Trans ID Clinic as well. It was one of my first choices for a place to volunteer with PBSC. And it was an awesome experience. It was one of my favorite experiences in first year. Um, not only did I work with a great team of people, um, but I worked with great lawyers as well, lawyer supervisors. So I just got involved with that first year through PBSC. I was just placed there and I loved it so much. I came back for a project lead. <laughs> what did you do in the Trans ID Clinic? Yeah, so the Trans ID Clinic, we work with lawyer supervisors to assist transgender and gender nonconforming folks uh, in changing their identity documents. So a lot of times that's name changes, gender changes. Um, and we work with the lawyers because it can be a really difficult process. So, for example, to change your name, you have to have a lawyer do a statutory declaration, which obviously costs money on top of the $137 it costs to change your name. So um, part of it is minimizing those costs of an already way too expensive process. 
and really just helping individuals navigate the name and gender change process because it can be really complicated and it helps to have people with a little bit of institutional knowledge of, for example, the steps to take wherein changing your name and gender marker is easier. So if you do things like following certain steps and in a certain way, it's much easier and you'll encounter less errors. And a lot of people, you know, come to us and they're like, oh my gosh, all these forms are so complicated because it's a really complicated and bureaucratic process. So really it's just helping people navigate that process. We're really just helping them fill out forms at the end of the day, but it's a it's a really, really big thing for a lot of people to have identity that matches their name and gender. It um, can help. Um, I mean, anywhere, if you're anywhere you have to show your ID, there's a risk that the person you're showing your ID to may, you know, look at you, look at your ID, and that can create a very hostile situation for some trans folks, for sure. Yeah, and I didn't know that it costs that much. <laughs> yeah, it costs so much money because, too, so you, like, change your, you change your name, so that costs money, and then you have to get a new birth certificate, which costs money, and you have to get a new driver's license and service card and a new passport and sometimes a new status card or citizenship card, and all of those costs really, really add up. So minimizing those costs as much as possible, so them not having to pay to see a notary, for example, or seeing a lawyer that, you know, is receptive to what they're trying to do and is there to help them Mm. is a little bit easier um, as well. Sounds like really rewarding work because you can actually see the impact. Yeah, it's nice. It's a really nice way to connect with the broader community as well, especially for me because I moved here for school. I don't really have connections to Victoria, Mm. and I just really like speaking to all the clients that came in. And I love um, the lawyers we work with as well. Our lawyers don't normally practice in the area of like human rights, for example, but this is something they volunteer their time for and do in, your, in their spare time. So it's really cool to see that that's something you can also do as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really great and rewarding experience to see also what we can do outside of law school, even if we're not working in this area specifically. So, Lynn, you've been in law school for two years. Yeah. What aspect of the law still troubles you as a queer law student? I think, you know, a lot has been done in terms in the law school and in law in general of kind of understanding queerness and everything a little bit more. But I think there's a long way to go, especially when it comes to kind of the intersectional experiences of queer people. So I think, too, there's kind of this assumption, um, in my interpretation at least, from like the media and how queer people are represented within media, there's kind of like this default like straight white queer person and generally like middle or upper class queer person as well. And I think there's a lot of room to consider in the law how queerness affects like, for example, poverty and labor law or um, how it affects um, different uh, kind of like how queerness and racism compound to affect people's experience and affect uh, the discrimination people face. So, for example, um, in my last year of university, I did a independent research kind of project on uh, the experiences of queer refugees in Canada. 
But there is kind of this assumption where many queer refugees, for example, are judged by or may have been judged by the standards applied to like white queer people or white rich queer people. So when trying to validate that someone is actually a quote unquote like queer refugee, you know, they would ask people, you know, do you go to Church Street? And it's like, someone doesn't have to go to Church Street to be gay in Toronto. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah someone doesn't. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, and that's like experiences like people have faced when trying to claim refugee status, for example. Or there was another story in CBC where these uh, this couple, this queer couple had been accepted. They were either immigrants or refugees. I can't remember specifically. But they faced a lot of poverty um, when they came to Canada and they faced a lot of racism because they found themselves having to um, use homeless shelters within Toronto um, and they faced racism in those homeless shelters. They faced homophobia in, in those shelters as well. So this idea that, you know, this default person is this like white, straight, upper class person, I think really uh, harms um, the experiences that queer people face. You know, trans people are overwhelmingly, you know, people who experience poverty and who experience uh, issues when it comes to labor. Even though, you know, on paper, discrimination may not be allowed, it doesn't mean in actuality that doesn't happen. And I think sometimes there is a disconnect and for people that they think, well, you're not allowed to discriminate against those people. It's like, you're not allowed to do a lot of things, but people still do them. <laughs> That's a really interesting point because I haven't really considered how poverty intersects mm -hmm. with queerness as well. I think the media portrayal of queerness, they're moving towards more a celebratory tone. I yeah. think it's like a, it's a glamorous image mm -hmm. of being queer. It's not the real lived experience. So yeah, exactly. And I think there was a study that kind of assessed like poverty levels of different groups and found that like uh, specifically like in America, like black lesbian women disproportionately face poverty. And the fact that they were both black and lesbian. And again, this goes to Kimberly Crenshaw's like original kind of theory of intersectionality has its place within critical le legal theory, right? So she was trying to understand how being a black woman specifically influences how black women experience the legal system. I also feel like our courses are very siloed. Like there's yeah. one course on, <laughs> on queering the law. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because they're only starting to incorporate perspectives on indigenous people for man many but not all of our courses. Yeah, exactly. So how are they going to incorporate other experiences in that? I yeah. think would be the next... Yeah, and I think, like, the way kind of the law has affected Indigenous peoples is becoming less of an afterthought. But the idea that law is this thing that affects people all the same, it's just not, it's not the reality. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot of challenges of being queer or, like, queerness in law. Are there any benefits that you've personally experienced about being queer in the law? I mean, I think being cool is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, I think it goes back to that conversation about like solidarity and understanding and it's kind of altered, you know, my general political approach kind of informs how I do everything. And that general political pro approach is really informed by queerness. 
And I think for me as well, just the experience, you know, allows me to relate to lots of people as well and find a really, really good community within the law. I never, ever would have gone to law school if I didn't know queer people in law school, if I didn't know queer people who were going into law school. And as well, just knowing people who are non-binary in the law is awesome. It's great. And it makes me very happy. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, just being able, like, through the Trans ID Clinic to just help people who are members of my community is just a really great experience. It's very rewarding. And it makes me think, you know, I'm doing the right thing here. So I think that's definitely been a highlight. And... Um, I think definitely it's very easy to focus, I think, on the negatives for sure, especially when, again, it's such a kind of straight white profession. But um, I think oftentimes it's really important to focus on like how far it's come and how far we can go as well. Yeah. I think definitely being in law can be really tiring when... when Yeah, in many ways. (laughs) In that environment where... Mm. Or it's, like, very heteronormative and I think a very huge deterrent. So definitely having people we can look up to, I guess, or people we can identify with Mm -hmm. has been really helpful to me as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I often think about if I could choose, if I would want to be something else, but I feel like I'm happy... I want to be gay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, it's cool. It's fun. (laughs) Yeah. No, I wouldn't have it any other way. So, and obviously my experience has not been as bad. I'm sure there are Mm -hmm. worse experiences, but I think in general, I'm happy Mm -hmm. with how I've been treated. Yeah. So I'm optimistic. Yeah. I think it's good to be optimistic. It's hard to be optimistic, but it's good to focus sometimes. Optimism is hard to come by these days. (laughs) Yeah. To close off this episode, I have some very important questions. For sure. Um, you mentioned podcasts that you can recommend to me. I would love to recommend them. Um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts. It's like my main form of media consumption. My kind of primary ones I always listen to are Sandy and Nora Talk Politics because I'm obsessed with both Sandy Hudson and Nora Loretto. I think they're awesome. And then I also listen to 5-4, which is a law podcast, but it's about the Supreme Court of the U.S. Um, Their tagline is how much the Supreme Court sucks. (laughs) Um, And they talk about kind of Supreme Court decisions from like a general kind of leftist perspective. Mm. It's interesting to compare as well. Um, just kind of constitutional interpretation, all that kind of stuff, but also just like how the culture of the U.S. influences their Supreme Court so much. Like it's much less so here in Canada, obviously. So, and then I also listen to a podcast called QAnon Anonymous, which is not about QAnon. (laughs) I must clarify. Okay, (laughs) Um, what is it about? It's about like, it's like about it as like a, phenomenon and about conspiracy theories Mm. more generally so they talk a lot about different conspiracies which is like my one of my main interests that's actually what I wanted to study if I'd gone on to do my PhD what's a game that you've been obsessed with lately oh no (laughs) so instead of doing my readings I play Stardew Valley which is my favorite 
semi-relaxing video game. It's not relaxing in that I'm trying to build my artisan goods empire and become a multimillionaire. It's like I I usually describe it as more complicated Animal Crossing. Oh, okay, yes. <laughs> That's like that makes a lot so of sense. you like farm and you like meet people and you can go fight monsters in the mines and like collect minerals and then you can also marry people. You can marry whoever you mm. want. Ugh. Yeah, so I have I have my farm li- life with my farm wife who's into crystals. <laughs> I love that. I think that's the favorite part about those type of games. Yeah. Like, I really, really liked Sims. Yeah, and Sims a, a is great. A few years ago, I just, I would make the two guys, like, fall in love with each other. <laughs> and that's just, like, my my little backstory. Yo, I always try to make my Sims, like, cheat on each other. <laughs> Okay, well, that was a really interesting conversation. I learned so much about you, Lane. That yeah, was really thank interesting. thank you. It was great. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm really glad to learn about the TransID clinic and all the experiences you had in undergrad. I thought that was really cool. Oh, and your GSA experience <laughs> when you were young. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Lane. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to Starry and Decisis. We'll chat again in our next episode. Starry and Decisis is a student-led podcast at the University of Victoria Faculty of Law, affiliated with the Appeal Publishing Society and produced at the CFUV Studios. You can find us at our website, onlineacademiccommunity.uvic.ca slash starryanddecisis.